Well, hello to you all. Uh, My name is Dave Fields. I'm the lead pastor here at Summit Drive Church. You know that word prejudice or favoritism, preferring my and mine over you and yours or those like you, man, that is still alive and well in the world today. And you'd have to live under a rock to not see that uh, as well. I mean, it happens on the large scale, kind of obvious ways. We see racism. That's been a constant and painful reality in our world um, and our country, to be honest, as well as many actually less obvious ways, things like classism. Uh, Classism is this idea that there's, you know, there's a particular mold based on someone's maybe level or uh, education or uh, level of education or income or the neighborhood or family that they come from, that these folks maybe have, uh, they're more highly favored in our community and other folks who maybe have less of those things are, are, are not. That's still a live issue. And and I know, in in cultural North America, we would love to think of ourselves as being a quote-unquote classless society, you know, where everyone is treated with respect and dignity, no matter his or her background. But we know it's not the case. Man, it's it's buried, I think, deeper than early 20th century uh, England, you know, think Downton Abbey and that sense of social order and class structure that needs to be maintained, whatever the cost. Uh, No, in our culture, it's not that obvious, but class is still very much a part of how we function. And perhaps the subtle social pressure that I think we all feel to some extent is why it's, it's hard to resist this uh, pull f- toward upward mobility, you know, the, the idea of moving to a better neighborhood or owning a, a nicer home or, or a bigger car. In our society, these can be signals to those around us of our relative worth. And so the question is, why do I bring this up? Well, because at the heart of the gospel is the God who loves his creation and who made each of us, all of us, his image bearers, Uh, as human beings, to have dignity and worth. Created us to live without pride or prejudice. And in our text today, we see how the gospel addresses prejudice and provides a basis for truly loving others, for truly seeing others as equal. Now, as we've been looking at the book of Acts over the last weeks, we've found that Jesus, the reigning and risen Lord, Man, he sent his followers to go into all the world and make forgiveness and life in his name known to everybody, to welcome the whole world, all and sundry, to experience Jesus' loving leadership. But all of this is happening, however, under the very often cruel reign of the Roman Empire. And that's where things get complicated for this new community of Jewish Jesus followers, Like, how will these Jewish believers be part of spreading the gospel or the good news of Jesus to the non-Jewish world? That's where we pick up today. Um, You can follow along in your Bibles, or if you have a device that has a Bible app on it, open it up to Acts chapter 10. Let's pray as we just begin. God, I'm so thankful that you inspired Luke to write this story down in just this way to help us see how you are at work in your early church community. And Lord, that by your spirit, we would hear how you're still at work in us, shaping us 
calling us to be part of your mission today. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Uh, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. Now, just notice, uh, for Jews living under Roman occupation and oppression, I mean, this is the kind of guy that were, would represent everything that a Jewish person would hate about Gentiles. They would just despise the things he represents. But verse 2, look at this. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God, like Israel's God, regularly. One day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Like, God is so pleased with what he's doing. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. Three of these guys. He told them everything that happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, in the story so far, in the book of Acts, we've seen that Peter has been sensitive to God's leading. He's been healing people. He's been preaching, even in the face of opposition. But how will he now respond to racial and religious discrimination? Well, first, we got to see that Cornelius, this is a God-fearer which means that he was a Gentile who had embraced the theology and practices of Judaism. No, not keeping all of the laws of Moses, but the practices of giving to the poor and regular prayer. And he led his family to be devout in these same patterns of life as well. We find out later that he's really respected by the Jews of his neighborhood. So even though he's a man who's got a heart that's soft to God, um, there's still more news that he needs to hear and embrace. And this will come as it always does, as Jesus sent emissaries, bring faithful words from faithful people, and more. This is the other huge part of this story. Um, Cornelius is still a Gentile. And in the eyes of the Jewish community, that left him as an outsider. There was this barrier that still was there. And this story is about how God tears that down. That's what we see God doing. God has met Cornelius in a powerful way, given this beautiful vision, showing him that God is interested in him and his community through this angelic messenger. And now from our setting, we can hardly imagine how deep the divide was between Jew and Gentile in the first century. Now the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, consistently tells us of God's heart for the nations, for all people. Beginning with the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, it's the very beginning of who the nation of Israel is. God promises Abraham that he will bless all people, all people, all nations, through Abraham and through his family. Now, the notion of God choosing Abraham or being elected by God is not about God playing favorites with one group of people. No, God's electing purpose is about a task. 
It's a special role to play within God's plan to save and heal and restore His loved but sin-broken world and us within it. The Old Testament will go on to speak of Israel's role as being a light to the nations. It points ahead to a time when the Gentiles will flow into the Lord's house, that God will pour out His Spirit among, what? All humankind. So God's design for His chosen people, what their election is for, has to do with the inclusion of all humanity who come to trust in the love of God expressed through Jesus. But John Stott, he's right when he points this out. He says the tragedy was that Israel had twisted the doctrine or teaching of election into one of favoritism, became filled with pride and hatred, pardon me, racial pride and hatred, despised Gentiles as dogs and developed traditions to keep them apart. No Orthodox Jew would enter the home of a Gentile or even a God-fearer, or invite such into his home. And, and, and that, that's what makes this story so key to God's plan and will help us understand why God goes to such great lengths to address, confront, and overturn prejudice. Let's keep looking. Read with me. At, uh, look at verse 9 and following. About noon the following day, they were on their way or on a journey and approaching the city. This, these are the people that um, Cornelius had sent from his home. So God is already at work. He sent these people uh, the day prior. Now, that day, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, he's not asleep, but this is one of those rare moments where it's like the veil that separates heaven, like God's space and earth, our space is sort of opened up, and Peter can see something incredible. Verse 11, he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. So <laughs> Peter responds with this kind of knee-jerk reaction. Uh, we might recognize that from the Gospels. Uh, and he just says, surely not. Like, no way, God. I'm not going to do that. Now his response, as impulsive as it is, is also understandable. I mean, he's been following the... Um, the religious and ritual laws that God had given his people, Israel, through Moses for his whole life. Like, this is what God had commanded him to do. Why would he go back on that now? See, this law code was specifically designed to remind God's people that they did have a special call. They were set apart as a holy nation to represent God to the rest of the world. They had a particular task. They were called to... Um, to, to have some of these dietary boundaries that marked a sort of line about what is holy and what is not holy. But the God who gave those laws can also change those laws. But, but as we'll see, it's not really about Peter's change in diet, though it becomes a new possibility for him for sure. This is actually and really about preparing him for what's about to happen next. See, though God is unchanging, He's provided a new way to live in faithfulness to Himself. 
that doesn't require Gentiles to become culturally Jewish, like to adopt the law code of Israel. They could relate fully to God, be included fully in the community of God's family, even with their own culture. Man, that has significant implications for the early church, and that'll show up again in Acts uh, chapter 15 in particular, but you know what? It still has major implications, especially how, for how we view missions today in our world. I want to speak more to that in a little bit, but first, look at this, verse 15. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. See, this is about way more than what God's people will now be free to eat. As will become clear to Peter, this is about addressing the deeply held prejudices that he and the Jewish community had toward Gentiles. It was preparing him to preach the good news of Jesus in a setting that like his deeply seated Jewish prejudice would have kept him from engaging in previously. Uh, verse 16, this happened three times, like that sheet came down three times. God is really pushing on this with Peter, and it says, immediately the sheet was taken back up to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, he's, his mind is still kind of blown and like, what is this about? The men sent by Cornelius, right at that moment, they found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying here. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm, I'm the one you're looking for. Like, why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, Peter hadn't fully grasped the meaning of the vision yet, but he does respond with an openness to what the Spirit is saying to him. And then he welcomes these Gentile men into his home to be his guests. Uh, this is huge, folks. Peter is in process. He is being converted, we might say, by the gospel. No, this isn't his initial coming to trust in Jesus, but this is the constant conversion that all of us need to go through, the reshaping of our hearts around who God really is. See, God has to reverse in him and in us the human ten tendency toward prejudice to show that God really plays no favorites. But before I'm too hard on Peter, too, uh, we need to see that we too can act in ways, often even unconsciously, that miss how the gospel is to transform our relationships. Peter's presuppositions about relating to Gentiles, they're being kindly and gently torn apart. You know, one of the interesting features of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings novel, it's the unlikely friendship between Gimli, who's a dwarf, and Legolas, uh, the elf. I mean, their kinds, which might represent different ethnicities, their kinds have not been kindly toward each other, to say the least. Uh, they've been locked in long-term conflict between elves and dwarves, 
And yet throughout the narrative, their unlikely friendship develops and becomes a point of strength and actually a key part in the success of their mission. So maybe we need to consider for a moment, like are there friendships with certain folks that we are because of our place in life or what would kind of seem normal to our peer group that we're just like really not open to developing? I had a professor who, who would say uh, this phrase, godliness is not being a snob. Of course, godliness or being like God in our character, it includes more than that too, but it can't mean less. I think she was right. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 12. He says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position." Do not be conceited. Basically, don't be a snob. It's true, godliness is not being a snob. So maybe there's friendships or connections with a particular group of people that maybe you're being called to be a light to these folks, to to witness to the love and forgiveness and life of Jesus among them. But man, that's an unlikely crowd for you to be a part of. Or maybe there's unlikely friends within the Christian community where you could be real mutual encouragement to others, to each other, maybe because of your difference, an unlikely friendship like Legolas and Gimli, that kind of connection. See, the church, the gathered, uh, the community gathered by God in response to His love and grace, the church is an unlikely, mismatched, ragtag, and yet royal bunch. And this story that we see today narrates how the universal, multi-ethnic community of God is being formed. And it took God's divine initiative really to push Peter to see it. Uh, But I think it also stands as a word to us, a reminder that what God has made clean, boy, don't call that thing dirty. Gentiles, Gentiles were often viewed with a sort of disdain to the Jews at the time. My guess is that if we're honest, there may be groups of people whom we are tempted to look down our nose at, unlikely to view with genuine affection. There's this John Foreman song, uh, Switchfoot song, called Patron Saint of Rock and Roll. And he paints this picture. He says, there's a park downtown where the homeless get ignored, where the church next door is a crowd singing, blessed are the poor, which is a quote from Jesus, by the way, where the Mercedes drive away muttering druggies, drunks, and whores, where the bumper sticker displays, my co-pilot is the Lord. Man, that song and that scene and that subtle cruelty, man, that keeps working on me like this text does. I was chatting to one of our long-term members this week and and he just, he noticed again, he's like, Dave, you, you don't have any brothers anymore. I said, no, I don't. I lost both of them in their mid-30s. Now, for those who, who don't know, both of them struggled deeply with mental health issues and drug addiction. Both of them loved Jesus and had, had embraced His forgiveness for them. Praise God for that. Both of them ended their lives tragically. As I was talking with my friend this week, he pointed out how painful life must be for those locked in drug addiction Many who would love to be free of it, but man, those hooks are deep. And I I just want to say I'm so grateful 
for the many of you who embraced Jordy, my younger brother who passed away just this last February, you embraced him as a friend and as a part of this community while he was here in Kamloops at Summit Drive Church. Man, I pray that we would continue to embrace those who are often looked at with disdain in our society, that we would embrace them with open arms and grow in our ability to picture the very welcome of God to our world. Notice, again, Peter invites these men to be his guest. Though he's perplexed about the vision, he's still trying to sort it out in his mind. He's open. He pays attention to the words of the Spirit. He says, don't hesitate to go with them, for they're sent by God. (laughs) One scholar puts it like this, so strong was the prejudice that if God had not acted to remove the boundary and overcome the distance between Jew and Gentile, it would just never have happened. So what comes of it? Well, let's look at the next verse, verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm, I'm only a, a man myself. Now, this is a very interesting moment. Cornelius, perhaps out of awe surrounding this man whom he had heard about in his vision, he falls at Peter's feet. But Peter's response addresses two common tendencies in the human heart. On the one hand, Peter rejects elevating the human to the place where only God belongs. Only God is to be worshipped. On the other hand, he refuses to treat Cornelius as if he were unclean, a view he had previously held. See, he recognizes that God has called clean what he's made clean, that this other human is full of dignity and worth, that they're on the same level. John Stott says it well. Peter refuses to be treated as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he were a dog. Verse 27, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it's against the law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. See, the penny, it it, it finally drops for Peter. He can see that this is a work of God and it, pre- it challenges his previously held convictions to his core. Now, the translation law, it may not be the best word to use here. See, there's no text in the, the law section of the Old Testament that restricts a Jew from visiting or associating with Gentiles. But there was a rabbinic tradition that made it into a cultural taboo. It's sort of a way to make sure that you don't become ritually unclean by association. Like, it could happen, so just stay far away. But Peter has finally put it all together. I should not call anyone impure or unclean. He gets it, (laughs) and we need to as well. You know, we we live in in a climate where the political rhetoric can too often include othering. What is that? Well, othering is a form of often language or gestures or kind of posture of heart that essentially says to the other, whomever that may be, 
you know, those that we see as the real problem with the world, it's, it's these people, uh, they're the problem. It's, it's to call those people impure, unclean, or essentially unworthy of my respect. Yes, there's a need to discern what kinds of behaviors are impure, unclean, like the things that God would say are wrong and like we shouldn't do that for sure. But simply to take a category of people and essentially dehumanize them, like throw them down with our language, that's to disregard the reality that God has given every human being inherent dignity and worth because he made us in his own image. He's given us God-given value, everybody. So may we say with Peter, I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That's still true for us. Now, after Cornelius tells him about the angelic vis- vision, look how Peter responds to the crowd that's gathered. Look at verse 34. Then Peter began to speak, I now realize that it is just how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but it accepts from every nation the one who fears him and, and does what is right. Now, I just want to point this out before we go on, that when he says God accepts, from every nation, those who fear him, who do what's right, this acceptance is not saying that people are saved because, uh, or, or like brought into right relationship with God because of their doing right. Uh, it, we're not saved by our performance, no. Peter will go on in a moment to tell us what the basis of new life with God, what forgiveness, where that comes from. And it's actually only through trusting in what Jesus has done. It's by grace that we're saved. It's not a work that we do ourselves. But what Peter is recognizing here, what he is saying, is that he sees now that God's plan is to form a truly multi-ethnic, multicultural people without there kind of being like some who are only partway in. Or, um, or it's not simply pushing everybody into the mold of Jewish culture. Now he gets it. And he goes on to make clear how God has acted to make this multi-ethnic family happen. Let's key in on the message. Verse 36, here's what Peter says. Now you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what's happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in in Galilee after his baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day, and caused him to be seen. Now, he wasn't seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testifying about him, testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. There it is, forgiveness. The fresh start. Being reconciled to God, that comes through trust 
in Jesus and what he's done. It's a new allegiance to him and his ways. It's in his name we find life. And then this, while Peter was still speaking these words, like he hadn't even finished his sermon yet, the Holy Spirit came down on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, like those who had come with Peter, um, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues, or these are languages that God enabled them to speak that they wouldn't know prior, and praising God. Now, some have suggested that uh, this speaking in tongues, really that all believers who truly have the Holy Spirit, well, they should speak in tongues too. I don't think so. I don't think that's what Luke is doing here or what's happening. This is a moment of significant boundary crossing. The Gentiles are shown to be, well, to be blessed by God in the same way as the Jewish people, to have the Holy Spirit come and move in their midst. So this is about the witnesses, Peter and those other six men that are with him, seeing that the gospel is for everybody. This is a confirmation. Uh, some have called it the Gentile Pentecost. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And this baptism in water, that's the signal that you now belong to the people of God. It's a way of saying, yes, you are God's beloved child, fully accepted, fully welcomed, welcome to the family. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, here's what we need to see. God truly shows no favoritism. Peter comes to see that Jesus is making room for everyone to come flooding into the new community of God in Jesus without having to take on the trappings of Jewish culture. Now, as, as I was reading this chapter, I, I couldn't help but think of the way that missions had initially been done in Canada among our First Nations people and especially how missionaries were often working more as agents of the government to dismantle the cultural heritage of the first people rather than simply presenting the good news of Jesus in a way that could be um, subsumed and caught up in the language and culture that were already there. Here's an example. Um, during my wife's undergrad years, she studied geography, and, and she did a, a social geography big research project on the Metlakatla First Nation. It's near Prince Rupert, just off the coast of BC. And I can recall looking at one of the photos from her research that was from the early 1900s, and it showed uh, indigenous people in white collared shirts and dresses that would have been appropriate for downtown London at that time. They were standing by white picket fences among uh, row housing. Now, of course, I mean, there are many, many issues that came with colonization in Canada. And from the marriage of church and state, um, that led really to the church being used as an agent of the state. Man, there is legitimate need for healing and reconciliation for the many evils that were done in the residential schools, for the 60s scoop where children were taken from their families and robbed of their community connection and their own culture, and for the abuses done in the name of Jesus, which had nothing to do at all with Jesus or his way of living. Lord have mercy. Here's what I want us to focus on amidst all of that. 
the efforts of the missionaries was, in some ways, working hand-in-hand with the government to eradicate First Nation culture, to make good English Protestants or French Catholics not a truly indigenous Christian community. We see in this text that God's intention for the Gentile followers of Jesus didn't require that they become culturally or religiously Jewish, but to recognize that Jesus was Lord And that good news could be worked out and expressed within their culture. Now, I want to say this too. Every culture has things about it that are beautiful and reflections of God's common grace to all humankind. And every culture has elements that are broken, that have come from the rebellion of the human heart, and that actually need to be addressed and transformed. That's true of our late modern West Coast Canadian culture. And we need to be aware of and let the gospel critique and correct us. It's true for every human culture. The problem comes when those who share Jesus are maybe more interested in bringing a particular culture-bound expression of the Christian faith rather than simply the gospel, which then will, in time, critique and correct those parts of any culture that need that transformation. Now, I would suggest that those changes need to come from within the host culture as that community grows in Christ. We'll see later that Peter and the early church will have to work out how Gentile Christians can be faithful to God without becoming culturally and religiously Jewish. Man, it's a stretch for them, but it's necessary to work out. And that's true for how we view mission today as well. Like, what parts of of the good news of Jesus are essential for people in our culture or even subcultures within our community? What, What are important that they take in? And which parts of Christian practice do we need to be careful not to impose, lest we're simply imposing our cultural expression of the gospel and not just the gospel itself? See, Peter is undergoing this process of being brought along by God's initiative to to see the reality more and more from God's perspective. And in the next scene, he will have to go on to defend what happened among his peers and those who hold those same prejudices that he had. Notice the opposition Peter receives, chapter 11. The apostles and believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, it's meaning these are religiously Jewish Christians, they criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Listen to Peter's response. He doesn't freak out at them. He too had to undergo a process, a God-given process, to address his prejudice. So he's patient with those around him. Yet, he does courageously push into what happened. He doesn't back off from it because he's facing real criticism here. One scholar says it like this, the critical discussion in Jerusalem shows that Peter was willing to risk the peace in the congregation, perhaps even friendships, in his endeavor to explain God's new initiative. So what does he do? Well, he just narrates the story He truly recounts what happens, and those who are critical, who were standing there with their arms crossed, boy, they actually come on board and give praise to God. 
that too is a miracle of sorts. So I ask in closing, how is God opening your eyes and heart to the ways maybe that prejudice is still present in you? It can and does happen with all of us. We might look differently at, 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 at people based on those differences. Maybe it is skin color. Let's just be honest here. It might be that. Or culture or language difference. Maybe it's education or, or how people speak. And we just kind of tend to judge people based on those things. Uh, maybe it has to do with age or marital status. I mean, if someone's single or if they're, if they're divorced. Or it has to do with ability or with mental health or addiction issues. So are there ways that need to get worked out in order that the way you interact with people is much more deeply in line with the reality that God does not show favoritism? Man, I think it speaks to the truth of the gospel when God's people live without, well, snobbery, without any prejudice. And are there ways that your heart needs to be converted, to be changed, to be reformed, so that you say with Peter about, you know, those people, maybe people who you've seen as they're the real problem with the world, where you need to be able to say with Peter, no, God has shown me that I cannot call anyone impure or unclean. Ask God to change your heart if that's you, to keep working on you like he worked on Peter. For we find that in Jesus, Jesus loves without prejudice. There is no favoritism within God. And we may let the life of Jesus take root deep in our hearts. It drives that out of us too. Let's pray. God, I thank you for each person gathered to hear this today. I pray and I trust that you had specific things to say to each one of us. Lord, maybe there's some who have just been looking into the Christian faith and maybe just today they've realized that, yeah, they too need that forgiveness of sin. They need assurance of life, life in you, life that's eternal. And I pray, Father, that they've turned to you and trust today. Maybe just to pray something as simple as, Lord, um, I recognize that I need you. I recognize that I've been a person who has in, in different ways rebelled against you. I've lifted other things higher than you in my life, and I want to love you as first and best. Lord, forgive me in the name of Jesus. We thank you that we can turn to you in trust and find real life and forgiveness that's freely granted us. And Lord, we pray that for those of us who've been, who, who found uh, new life in you, that you would keep converting our hearts. You would keep changing us and reforming us and making us more and more like you, God, the God who is without favoritism, that we would live in this world as, as bearers of good news that, that go into communities and places that, that people might think is just crazy for us to do. But it's because we're changed by your love and we know that we're all loved by you, that we're all equal, and that everyone needs this news. So send us for your glory, for your name's sake. Amen.